something is go we are live hello hello everybody welcome to spiritual business spotlight i'm really really excited today um to introduce a new guest i don't know if i'm on the right or left but hi lori lambert williams welcome to the show sue thank you so much for having me i'm really honored to be here uh, this is really exciting. I like the idea of spiritual business spotlight. That sounds so great. I, I want to find out more. <laughs> oh, I'm all like, we want to find out more about you. So basically what I do is I talk to people like yourself who are working in spirituality and in really interesting modalities, you know, energy healing, um, the work that you do, which is controlled remote viewing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, yeah, healers and psychics and mediums and all sorts of people who dance on that little edge of this world or the next world or what we're capable of that we're not even aware of being capable of doing. That is so true. That's that's my passion, actually. I, I really believe that consciousness is the final frontier. Mm. And because of that, I mean, you know, we've explored, we've explored space, not of course, just a tiny bit, but we've explored a lot of space. We actually know more about the moon than we do about consciousness. You know, we know more about the ocean than we do about consciousness. So consciousness to me is the final frontier. And that's what all of these arts that you just mentioned explore. You know, we're using our consciousness to explore and going beyond the limits of what most people think is human capacity, right? We're going way beyond that and finding out that humans truly are limitless in our capacity to connect with each other, to get information that is not readily available through what we call normal means. So that's how, what led me into controlled remote viewing and why I'm so passionate about it. You know, they say if you can, if you can simply convince 1% of the population or introduce 1% of the population to an idea and get them to buy into it, that you'll have critical mass. So my idea is what if we could reach 1% of the world's population and help them discover their own potential, then we could have critical mass to raise the consciousness of the entire planet. Wow. Only 1%. Only 1%. Wow. And that is exciting and optimistic as well, because especially right now with everything that's going on in the world, you know, um, financially with resources, with the earth herself and yeah. with people, you know, I really think that there's a, such a chance for us to reconnect with one another because everything has been so micro separated into our own little houses with the lockdowns and everything. Yeah. And then... But with the work that you do and the work that I do in some ways too, it, there's a connection there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, we can connect with people. I mean, how many people that are probably listening to your show right now have had the experience of connecting psychically or remotely with another human? Most of us have. My, right. current, my husband and I, before we met, we were having dreams about each other. We were literally dreaming about each other and we hadn't met yet. And, uh, you know, and so many things happened that kind of led us to meet 
and recognize each other. And uh, it was really quite amazing. And so you think, okay, how, how am I connecting with this person? And when we first started dating, I could literally hear his thoughts in my head. And now you might say it's easy to get into self-delusion where we think, oh, you know, I hear his thoughts in my head. But then if we don't get solid feedback, we could easily be kidding ourselves, right? So um, there was a, a moment at which we were, we were dating and we'd been seeing a lot of each other and we just wanted to be together all the time. And, uh, and we were talking about when we were going to see each other next. And I could hear him planning on buying me a Valentine's gift. So he said, well, I can't see you tomorrow, but I could hear his th thoughts and he, in his voice in my head. And he was thinking, well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna tell her I can't see her because I wanna go buy her a Valentine's gift. And I was afraid that if I, if I said, Hey, did you just have this thought, you know, and it, and he did that he would be really freaked out and wouldn't want to see me again. You know, I, I don't think most men want to have a woman that can read their thoughts. Right. So I, so I said, um, you know, I once heard a story about this little girl who just loved her daddy so much and he just adored her and they loved spending time together. And every evening he'd have her on his lap in front of the fire and tell her stories and they would just have such a great time together. And it was like their treasured time. And then as it was nearing Christmas, she decided she wanted to knit him some bedroom slippers as a surprise. So she started staying in her room in the evenings and telling him she couldn't come out and she had to do something and because she, she really wanted to make this a special gift and surprise him but he would have much rather had her time and spend that time with her than to have the bedroom slippers and I, so i told him the story and he's thinking to himself he tells me later he's thinking uh she's she's reading my thoughts <laughs> she knows what i'm thinking <laughs> And it really did kind of freak him out. You know, he kind of thought, well, gee, you know, how do I like that? How's that, you know, how's that going to work? <laughs> so. Oh, I can so, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it was, but how, you know, but that makes me think, you know, when they talk about schools of fish, I love studying quantum theory because I feel like quantum theory completely explains why we have successful mediums and psychics and healers and remote viewers and why it works. If you think about schools of fish that all move in unison, flocks of birds that are all going in the same direction and how they can even separate these photons of light and have them react the same, even though they're miles apart, they're still connected with each other. And so, you know, I feel like, wow, we are connected. That's why we have precognitive dreams and that's why we, we see events before they happen or why we connect with other people or even able to connect with past loved ones and tell people about what happened to them, you know, or what, what's, what's, what the mystery is that they want to know. Um, yeah, that's all is so beautiful. It's like, it's such a, a, when, when we connect with the loved ones who have passed on, it's just usually so much validation and calming for the soul. And you had psychic experiences, though, throughout your life. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, I, I've had psychic experiences my whole life. Um, I didn't realize that it, they were anything out of the ordinary, actually. You know, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, this probably happens to everybody. And I didn't I didn't have a clue that it didn't until I um, I was reading a book back in 1996. I had just started a new job working as the head of a refugee resettlement program. And I was reading a book 
about research that was done with children who had clinically died and been revived and their near-death stories, you know, their, okay. their experiences while they were while they were dead. And um, and they studied these children for 20 years. And they found that as they grew up, these children that had died and had these extraordinary experiences, um, that as they grew up, they had um, they said they said they had more than normal amount of psychic ability, and that normal was considered one verifiable psychic experience per lifetime. With verifiable meaning, something happens, you tell someone else, and then it comes true. For example, so it's you know someone else heard it before it came true, and can verify that you did get that information prior to the event happening. That's a verifiable experience. But when I read that, I was shocked. I was like, one verifiable experience per lifetime is normal? <laughs> and that's when it hit me that I wasn't normal. And also, um, my mother had only recently, before this happened, had only recently told me about an experience when I was a baby where I clinically died and was revived. I didn't even know. I didn't remember it. you know. But I thought, oh, <clears throat> well, maybe I had a near-death experience that I don't recall. But... Uh, it is interesting that that was in my past. And I fought it for a really long time. I didn't fight the psychic experiences because I considered them normal and part of who I was. But what I did fight was mediumship. You know, I didn't mm. want to think that I might be talking to dead people. <clears throat> and I had been a missionary, you know, for 20 years, a Christian missionary. And there's a fine line between hearing the voice of the Lord and communing with the devil, right? <laughs> Right, right. You know, and it all depends on semantics and the language you use, you know, whether you're like, uh, you know, if you if you had a precognitive dream warning you, for example, that someone might have cancer, a friend of yours or a loved one, you'd want to tell them. But if depending on their background and their belief systems, you don't want to just go barging in and saying, hey, you know, I had a psychic intuition that you are, you know, you're going to die or you have a tumor or whatever. You want to go in and reach them on their level. And if, if that would freak them out, you could say, you know, I had a, a dream about you the other night and it kind of worried me because in the dream, you, you had something wrong with your whatever, you know, you might want to go get that checked out, you know, just to make me feel better. Go, go get it checked out, you know, or something along those lines. You'd want to be careful how you presented that to them uh, so that you didn't scare them, you know, or, and some people would even be more comfortable with, you know, I had a word from the Lord the other day, you know, that sort of thing. And so I, I found that I had to be careful how I presented when I would get information, how I presented that to others, that that was a really important thing to consider. Oh, I can imagine. And I think you and I grew up kind of probably in the same era where, and I grew up in the Bible Belt too of America. So it was very like, you know, there was an opening for the coolness of it and the uniqueness of it. But there was also that fear, like, who are you speaking with and who's giving you these messages? Even today, I think some there are some people. And then you also have like, one of my senses is audio. And mm -hmm. I have had like audio hallucinations, like big booming voices telling me things, you know, and, and so some people would say, wow, you need to go get that checked out, you know. Um, they would immediately label you a schizophrenic. Right, right, exactly, because we've been society, we've been 
taught that that's what that is. And, yeah. and if you open yourself up to having experiences in a way, then, but this is something that they've been studying kind of on the side in a lot of places that we perhaps are starting to learn about due to pop culture. Yes. Um, yeah. So you have some experience with that, don't you? Um, well, it was specific, you mean hearing voices? No, um, with the um, military side of things. Oh. With, um, I'm thinking of Stranger Things, how they did. And I don't know if you've ever watched the series Stranger Things. I, I, I saw a few episodes in the first season, but I don't uh -huh. get it. I don't get much time to watch a lot of television or, or shows. So, uh, you know, we, we try to aim for one movie a week on Friday nights. <laughs> Friday okay, night. <laughs> um, but, um, I, but I do, I am familiar with, with the, sh with the premise of the show. One thing um, that happened to me was because I had been a missionary and I at the same time had continual psychic experiences. And then as I began to realize that people around me were not having the kind of experiences that I was on a regular basis, where I just suddenly knew things, for example, uh, claircognizance, or when I would suddenly feel things in my body that would warn me or whatever, that was clairsentience. And then also, you know, I would, I would literally have visions that saved my life on a number of occasions and some of the oh. times the lives of others. That's clairvoyance, right? And then mm -hmm. I also would hear sometimes booming voices that would jump make me jump out of my chair and I'd look around and realize no one else heard that you know so that's a clear audience right so I would have these things happen and when I became aware that not everyone was like that and wasn't having those experiences it made me want to seek out understanding of what was happening and how that fit into my belief system at the time because my belief system was at the time was pretty black and white. It was pretty binary, you know, with God and the God up in heaven and the devil in hell and, you know, good and evil. And just everything was pretty black and white. And there wasn't a lot of gray there for me. And I didn't really like to think outside my belief system. Like I didn't want to think about UFOs because I didn't understand how did that fit in? I didn't want to think about Bigfoot or Sasquatch or and, and the idea of interdimensional beings never even, I mean, that wasn't even part of my, <laughs> my, my vocabulary. You know, if somebody said, well, have you had any encounters with interdimensional beings? I'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so I was a very different person then. And, but yet I knew there was more and I wanted to explore it. And when I stopped the missionary lifestyle and came back to the States and got this job as the head of a refugee resettlement program, um, I was invited to go to the Spring Institute in Denver, Colorado to attend a conference on post-traumatic stress disorder in refugees and secondary post-traumatic stress disorder from people who work with refugees and hear their stories all the time. See, that shows you how we can take on people's stuff, right? right. And so um, I'm, I'm in this, I'm at, attending this conference the first day. And meanwhile, I was reading this book about the research with the kids who had had OBEs. And so I'm attending the conference and there was this fascinating speaker. He was such a good speaker. And he was a psychologist and he was a recently retired colonel from the military. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I just met my very first colonel ever. Uh, three days ago when I started this new job, on the day that I started the new job, this colonel shows up and unbeknownst to me, he was with the CIA and he had been assigned to get really close to me so that 
he could keep an eye on the newest refugees coming into the country because the day I began that job was the day they decided to allow Kurds into the United States, Kurdish refugees into the United States for the first time. So they really wanted to keep an eye on them because they thought, well, Saddam Hussein could slip, you know, somebody in here. Right. So suddenly I meet this colonel and then three days later, I'm at the Spring Institute and this fascinating man is talking and he's a recently retired colonel. And so I was fascinated with everything he talked about. And then that night when I went to sleep, I dreamt that I met this colonel that had been talking at the conference. And I said, oh, my gosh, you know, I just met my first colonel the other day. And I was telling him in the dream about this other colonel. So I get up early the next morning and I show up early at the conference and I'm standing outside the locked ballroom doors waiting for them to open and up walks this speaker, this uh, psychologist, retired colonel, and he's standing there. So we're in this standing there in uncomfortable silence. And then I looked at him and said, I had a dream about you last night. <laughs> My mother always told me, hey, if you want a man to remember you, just tell him you had a dream about him. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm standing there and... And he says, really, what did you dream? And I said, well, I, you know, and then I told him about the dream. And then he said, what branch of the military is this colonel that you met in? And I said, you know, I don't know, because I know nothing about the military. I said, I don't know, but I think it was military intelligence. And he said, oh, that's interesting. I was in military intelligence. And right as he said that to me, this cover of a book that I had not bought, but that I had seen on the new arrival bookshelf at the bookstore had flashed in my mind. And it was turquoise and black. And, uh, and I just would blurt it out. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, have you seen that new book? And he's like, what new book? And I said, it's turquoise and black. And it has something to do with psychics in the military. And he said, are you talking about A Psychic Warrior by David Morehouse? And I said, that's the book. Because all I had done was picked it up and read the inside jacket. I didn't buy the book. And so he's like, I can't believe you're asking me about that book. He said, I was a, I was the head of the psychology part of that program for 20 years. I was the guy who vetted the men they wanted to put in the unit. And, oh, wow. to, and so then he was suddenly very interested in talking to me. And he starts kind of leaning in, you know, into my space and, <laughs> wow, you know, do you, do you have a like photographic memory for numbers? Do you remember maps easily? Are you artistic? And he just starts asking me these questions. And I'm just like, you know, and I'm, I'm having visions of men in black kidnapping me. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. I really did have a lot of fears, you know, the fear kind of ruled my life back then. Thankfully it doesn't anymore, but back then it really did. And so um, I was kind of edging away from him. And so he, as he realizes that I'm kind of trying to escape, he finally says, Hey, Hey, when you get home and this was 1996. So the internet was still a little bit new, you know, but he's like, when you get home, go online and look up controlled remote viewing. So I said, okay. And so when I got home, the first thing I did was look up controlled remote viewing and up popped this beautiful website. It, well, it was kind of elementary, but it was beautiful in the sense that it, I, I had this sense in my body, in my mind, like Eureka, at last I've found the answer. And what it said was it said, what is CRV? And then it said controlled remote viewing. And then it explained that we, all of us humans are born with an innate knowing. We have intuition, all of us do. We're born with it. It's part of Ugin Og and the primeval forest. You know, when they're walking through the forest and they hear a twig snap behind them and Ug turns around and says, what was that? And Og, meanwhile, is running as fast as he can saying saber-toothed tiger without having looked behind him. That's, oh, wow. you know, that's, that's, it's part of our innate nature to keep us alive. And right. so 
as I read this, it just kind of all the fear about this being like weird and freaky and I'm a freak just sort of fell away. And it went like, no, no, you're, you know, this is as normal as your eyesight. It's as normal as your hearing. There's nothing wrong with it, you know? And then it was like, oh, oh, cool. You know, and I just went, this is it. This is what I found. So I, I wrote him an email there with a lot of trepidation because, you know, you're not, back then it was very scary. You're not supposed to write to people you don't know on the internet because they could be kidnappers <laughs> or bad people. So I, so I wrote to him and I said, do you think I could learn this? You know, and I, I wrote a little letter and he wrote back this beautiful response. His name was Lynn Buchanan. Lynn is 83 now. Back then he was probably, I think, 54 at the time. And I was 39. And it just so happened that two weeks later, I was going to be 40 miles from his house in Maryland. And so I said, well, I have to come to Maryland next week. And he said, oh, great. Well, maybe we could meet you and, and you know, we'd love to meet with you and talk with you. So long story short, I w went to their house. He gave me instructions how to get to his house and, in Maryland. And I ended up staying there for five hours. And we just talked and it was, it was so fun. And I, I just was, I just felt like I had met a kindred spirit. The hilarious thing though, is that he and his wife were both in the room. She was pretty quiet the whole time. She was kind of behind her laptop working and she didn't really talk much, but he, he and I just were kind of talking together. And I told him I was 39 and, and that I had seven children and, uh, and that I had my oldest daughter had just had a baby and she and her husband were living with us with our granddaughter, grandson, grandson. And uh, so we had this conversation that went on for five hours. And then when I, I found out years later that when I left, his wife looked at him and said, Lynn, you've just got to start, stop inviting these crazy people to our house. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, and I said, well, why did, why? And, and Linda had become like a mother to me. You know, we were just so close. And I said, why did, uh, why did Linda say that she thought I was crazy? He said, we both thought you were crazy. He said, we thought you were crazy because you looked like you were early 20s, maybe 22, 25 at the most. And he said, and and you're here you are talking about your seven children and your grandbaby. And we're like, that poor girl and her imaginary family. Oh, <laughs> so it was kind of a, an auspicious beginning, but we they ended up becoming like second parents to me, really. I mean, just I could turn to them for anything. And they were so wonderful. Um, when I when I told them that I was getting divorced and I was kind of uh, I was kind of in a bad spot. They said, come stay with us. Do you, we'll give you money. We'll take care of you. I did not take them up on the offer because I just felt like I couldn't take advantage of them that way. But I was so touched that they were so immediately willing to take me in and take care of me. And, uh, and then this, by this time, this was uh, 2001. And Lynn said, well, I'm going to turn over all the basic students in the United States to all the, all the basic students who come to me, I'm going to let you teach them. And I had been studying really intensely with him since 1997. So, oh, wow. yeah. So he said, I think you're ready to start teaching and I'm going to turn over all these basic students to you. And so I felt like he just handed me a big piece of his pie that he could have used. You know, that was, he didn't have to do that. And uh, he didn't have to share that piece of the pie with me at all. And, and he did it just truly out of kindness. And so anyway, can't say enough about how wonderful Lynn has been and, and what a, a blessing he's been in my life. And it's definitely, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you about controlled remote viewing if it were not for his generosity. Um, but anyway, so it was, uh, it was, it's been a very interesting journey. And I remember the first time that I had something happen in a remote viewing session.
that caused me to really start questioning my belief system. And what happened was that I was, I was asked to view a target that I had no idea. We're always blind to the target, Sue. So we, we try to keep the viewers where they don't even know what they're viewing. Because if I were to tell you, for example, Sue, the target is a criminal, describe the target. Well, the minute you think the word criminal, you're thinking, oh my gosh, male, dark, ethnic, dangerous, armed, um, large, threatening, what, uh, arm, uh, uh, drug addicted. You know, you've got all these stereotypes maybe in your mind connected to what a criminal is to you, you know, that you might not even realize they're there. They might be subconscious connections. But what if the criminal in this case was the little old lady who's worked for the company for 50 years and has been embezzling the whole time, you know? Yeah. You know, we, we often jump to conclusions. And so in order to avoid that type of pollution, getting to the viewer, we want to keep things totally clean. And it's just easier if the viewer doesn't know much about the target. So we might say, let's say that in the case of a criminal trying to get a description of a criminal, instead of saying the target is a criminal, we could just say the target is a person, describe the target. And that way it takes all that pollution away because it could be right. anybody. Um, or if let's say that the police need to know where the kidnapped child will be found, then the target is a location, describe the target. You know, we can keep things very generic so that we don't lead the viewer astray with their own subconscious stereotypes. Because the minute you hear the word kidnapped child, your imagination is going to go wild, right? Right. So, um, so in this case, I was tasked with... Um, with a target, and I was actually tasked by the head of MUFON in a in a in a certain state. I won't say what the name of the state was, but it was in a certain state. The head of MUFON for that state, and MUFON is the Mutual UFO Network. For those who are not familiar with MUFON, it's a it's an organization that really does scientific research on on UFO sightings to determine whether they truly are a UFO sighting or if it's something else, an air balloon, whatever. And so um, they found they find actually that about 95% of their investigations turn up to be, it could be easily something that is not UFO or UAP related. Um, but 5% are completely inexplicable. Huh. And so um, and so there was an incident that happened back in the 50s. It's known as the Kinross incident. And okay. you can actually Google that and you'll you'll see it on Google, but uh, and what happened was they had, they had the Air Force in Madison, Wisconsin, found this blip on the radar that they didn't know what it was. So they scrambled a jet with two guys flying, and it was nighttime. It was, I believe it was November. It was raining. And this, this jet that was really cool looking it was a silver jet with like black sharks on it or something, black, black stripes that look like sh a shark on each side. Anyway, so this jet takes off to go intercept whatever this blip is. So they're watching on the radar and they're watching as the plane is approaching the blip and then they, they join and everything disappears. Everything disappears, there's no debris, there's nothing. And I think they scrambled a secondary jet to go find the first one. And I think that one disappeared too, if I recall correctly. Okay. Take, take that with a grain of salt because I haven't looked it up recently, but I believe the second one also disappeared. Anyway, so this was my target and my job was to describe what happened and then what actually happened at the point of them merging. So I'm doing this target and I described the plane and I drew the plane, you know, with the, with the black marks on it and everything. And, uh, and I was seeing this plane 
had had some kind of interaction with another thing that I considered possibly man-made. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that it was a big object in the sky and that they had somehow merged and, and that I now perceived them in the bottom of a trench in underwater because all of this happened over the Great Lakes. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, but then when I went into the, 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 whatever we call this and we call them man-maids, but when I went into this other vehicle or other man-made thing, I, I found it to be like a spaceship. I felt like I was standing inside some kind of a spaceship and that it had a big round dashboard kind of like thing, a big area, and that it, it didn't have switches or dials or anything. And this was probably early 2000s, you know, but in, it didn't have any kind of switches or dials. Everything was on these screens and there wasn't information on the screens. The screens were round and this being that was kind of like the captain or the head of this vehicle would simply pass his hand over it to control the vehicle and that he was actually controlling it with his consciousness. Now you have to understand that nowadays that doesn't sound so wild, but back then, especially for me, that was wild. I mean, that was like, what the heck am I looking at? You know, this doesn't fit in with my belief system at all. So I called Lynn Buchanan and I said, Lynn, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, this operational target and it's kind of, um, it's kind of causing some issues with my belief system. And he laughed and he said, he didn't laugh, ha ha ha, but he chuckled and he said, yeah, CRV will do that, you know. <laughs> um, but I, he said, but Lori, think about it. He said, if God, the God that you have believed in all these years, if God is big enough to, to oversee this planet and your life and all the people on the planet and all the beings, all the animals and everything, why would God only be interested in this planet? Why would God not be the God of the universe, you know, and all the planets and all the beings? And it just had never struck me, believe it or not. People are going to be like, well, she was really dense. But I just just hadn't yeah. thought that. You know, just had never thought, I might, it had never occurred to me. And I just went, well, that's true. There doesn't need to really be a conflict here. You know, and then gradually, as I did more and more targets that were really deep, esoteric targets, I have come to really understand things that were never part of my my brain at all before. Uh, things about you know multiple universes, parallel dimensions, string theory, uh, you know, and how we're all connected. And so it's really been a, a life changer for me. It sounds like it. And so going back to this experience that you had with the Kinross incident. Um, you can use controlled remote viewing in different timelines so it doesn't need to be a present moment timeline exactly uh, incident or experiment yeah you know i i have a, a fun story about that i had a a student that i was working with one-on-one -on -one, and she was high up in the department of homeland security and she had had kind of grown up in Homeland Security in the prison system, working first as a guard and then eventually became a warden and then became like the head of a bunch of different prisons. You know, she kind of moved her way up. And so she was taking the class from me and on the third day of basic, and I, I teach eight different three-day workshops that build on each other, basic, intermediate, advanced, post-advanced. And I even have a free, a free class for people to get to try out what CRV really is like before they spend any money. And I think you're going to be showing a URL of that for your listeners to have a, a, access to this free class. But the, the thing that, um, that really was so funny was that her target on the third day, 
And a target can be anything in all of time or space. But back in these in the old back in the old days, we used to cut pictures out of magazines and glue them onto paper and put them in an envelope. Nowadays, we have digital, digital photos, and we don't have to do that anymore. But um, anyway, her picture was cut out of a National Geographic magazine, and it was a picture of a probably a, like a 32-year-old Jane Goodall. Now, Jane Goodall is the ape lady, right? And she is now right. in her 80s. She's now in her 80s. But and this was a photograph of her when she was about 32. She had um, light brown hair, very straight, parted, you know, on the side and came down to a little below her shoulder. And she was um, kneeling in front of a chimpanzee. She was holding the chimpanzee's index finger with one hand. The other hand, she was offering the chimpanzee some food. And behind her, she was like in the forest, but in behind her, there were four uh, cylindrical poles set in a square with a canvas roof over that. And so she described Jane Goodall to a T, including what she was wearing. She described the chimpanzee. She said, and this woman is holding something black, rubbery, and cylindrical, which was the index finger of the chimpanzee. She said her other hand is extended towards this black furry thing, and, and it seems to be holding... Um, some kind of food. And then she then she says, and behind the woman is a house. Now we, we teach in controlled remote viewing. Our mantra is describe, don't identify. We try to move viewers away from using nouns so consistently because nouns will get you in trouble every time. So she says, uh, the target is, I mean, she said behind this, this people, this beings are, is a house. So I said, move into that which you perceive as a house and describe. So she said, oh, it has no walls because this was just four poles with a roof, right? She said, oh, it has no walls. So I said, well, move up five feet and look down and describe. And because inside this thing was, you know, inside these four poles with the roof, there was a picnic table with a tablecloth on it and a bunch of equipment, you know, like electronic equipment. So she's essentially floating over the table <laughs> mentally. And she says, I'm seeing a pattern. And I think it, I feel like it's linoleum, you know, like a pattern on linoleum. And she draws this pattern. And so um, when, when she, we're done with the session and she's written up her report and then she gets to see what she's been remote viewing and she looks at the picture and I expect her to get excited about how well she did describing Jane Goodall. <laughs> and the but instead she goes, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, look, I drew the pattern that's on the tablecloth. I drew yeah. the pattern, I drew the pattern exactly. And she starts kind of getting, she goes, that means, that means I was in that tent. I was in the tent. And I said, well, I don't want to freak you out anymore. But not only were you in the tent, but you were in the tent 50 years ago. <laughs> she goes, oh my gosh. So yes, CRV is a time machine and you can view things that happened in the past and you can sometimes view things that happen in the future now the future is not set and sometimes uh, a dear old friend of mine who was the first man ever inducted into the remote viewing unit that the u.s military oh, formed his name was melvin c riley mel riley and i became best friends and mel uh he said you know one time i was part of a project with a bunch of guys and we were trying to view the future but the damn thing wouldn't stand still <laughs> So um, the problem, if you think of the future, uh, Lynn has an analogy called the rock in the pond of time. If you think about, like, say you're a frog on a lily pad in the pond of time, and you look across the pond and you see a rock with a juicy bug that would make a great dinner. And so you want that bug. Actually, just the thought, just the act of looking at the bug can kind of scare the bug away. 
But sometimes a bug feels that he's being stared at and he flies away, right? But jumping into the pond to swim towards the bug will definitely create ripples that will scare the bug away. So you get to the rock and the bug is gone, but you know you saw that bug, right? But now the bug is gone, but the rock is still there. And the point of that analogy about remote viewing or psychically seeing the future is that there are rocks in the pond of time that seem to be unchangeable, but there might be the ones that get away. So if we use 9-11 as an example, when the two towers went down, right, in, in New York City, they had so many people who did not show up to work that day at the towers that they thought there must be, these people all must be part of a conspiracy. They must have known that something this was going to happen. And so they did a huge investigation and they found that no, none of them knew. It was just a quote unquote coincidence that that many people didn't show up to work that day. Well, I don't think it was a coincidence. I think that there are ripples through time that warn us about things and that those people just, for whatever reason, it was just like, I, I either, well, some of them had, you know, had reasons that they didn't make it to work, whether, you know, one kid, one, my kid got sick or I woke up sick or, or, you know, the subway broke down or whatever, and they couldn't get to work. But a lot, for a lot of people, it was just sort of like, oh, I don't feel like going to work today. I think I'm going to call in sick. So that's a rock in the pond of time. Those, the, the people who didn't go to work that day were the bugs that got away. But the event itself might be a rock in the pond of time that could not be changed, even though many of us saw it. For years, I had nightmares about giant aircraft crashing into skyscrapers. Oh, From wow. the some of my earliest dreams as a child, I would have these nightmares about these big planes crashing into these big towers. And when I was uh, in uh, September 10th, 20th, 2001, I was trying to leave New York. I had been in New York for several days and I was leaving and my plane couldn't get out. And finally it left at 9.30 at night on September 10th. And I landed at DFW and had to stay in a hotel because there were no more flights to Amarillo, Texas, which is where I lived at the time. And so the next morning I'm standing outside of TGF Fridays in the airport when I see the plane hit the towers. Mm -hmm. And I immediately went to a payphone and called a rental car place and said, I'm gonna need a rental car to get to Amarillo. Cause I knew they would shut down the airports, you know? And when I saw the second one hit, it was like, okay, this is definitely, they're gonna shut down the airports. I went to a guy said, I need to get my luggage because I'm not gonna make it to Amarillo. I'm not gonna get on the plane to Amarillo. So he said, okay, and he gave me my luggage. I rented a van. I said, who here is going to Amarillo? And I got a bunch of people to hop on the van with me and we split the costs and we, we went oh, to Amarillo. Man. Yeah, but the thing was, is that I feel like the years of remote viewing, the years of having seen the incident before it happened. And I never dreamt that again. I never had that nightmare again. But uh, I think the years of that prepared me so that I was the first one to the phones. I was the first one saying, oh, it's terrorism, you know, and uh, when everyone else was just so in shock, they couldn't re react. You know, every, right. everyone was just sort of, you know, at that point, because this was like instantly the, the minute that second plane hit, I ran to the phones. Um, you know, and then after that, after I made that phone call and got the thing and everything, then all of a sudden people were reacting and lining up for the phones and lining up at the desk to get their luggage and things. Um, wow. So so that's one reason we call controlled remote viewing a survival skill of the future. And the future's here. I mean, if you are able to be the first one to react in a crisis, how can that change the outcome for you and for those you love?
You know, if you can take action before anyone else, then it can really make a difference in your life. Right, right. Well, and I think that you could apply this to so many different areas. I think you do like a medical, um, a medical viewing portion. I think I read lottery tickets on your website too, you know, just, but being able to, to, you know, I, I've done it just really, you know, somebody calls me and says, I lost something. Can you find it for me? And I'm just like, I'll try, you know, that's not my main thing that I do, but I'll try. And then they call me back later and they're like, oh my gosh, you found the thing, you know, and, but you teach people to be able to can do this in a very controlled way so that they're not, you know, cause when I'm doing it, I sometimes feel like I'm just, I'm just reaching into that space mm -hmm. uh, yes. and yeah well so many of us have spontaneous bursts of intuition and so the idea behind controlled remote viewing is what if you could actually control it you know and i've had people say well i don't think we should try to control intuition i'm like well why learn to drive your car why not just let your car go at once you know it's like well i would crash into something exactly you know why we don't want the tail wagging the dog there's absolutely nothing wrong with honing your skills to where you can direct them in a way that allows you to use them on demand right and so in the in thinking of it that way um, when we have, like you said, you, you help this guy find his missing thing. Um, one thing that I really feel distinguishes CRV from other types of intuition is that you can get amazing detail with CRV. So I was asked to participate in a research project where they wanted to see if remote viewers could see a microscopic thing, something that was microscopic. Oh. In, in, with the idea that in the future, remote viewers might be able to help with finding solutions to problems like re, um, antibiotic resistant bacteria mm -hmm. threatening the human race, let's say. So um, this, this was way before COVID by the way. And so the, the project was put on and, and they, the idea was uh, a microphage, which is a virus that eats antibiotic resistant bacteria. So this virus could potentially save humanity if if we were overrun by bacteria that was antibiotic resistant. And so um, I ended up, you know, I was blind to the target. I was told uh, it, with us, we have, we have seven categories that we, that we kind of are kind of broad, we call them gestalts, but they're kind of broad categories or overall concepts, things like the concept of land or the concept of water and water is in many forms. Water is, you know, a liquid, it is a gas, it is a vapor, it's ice, it's snow. There's so many different forms of water. And then also the idea of liquid, you know, in addition to just water liquid, like the wine in someone's glass or the sweat on someone's brow. So that's the overall concept that we call water. Then there's the concept of land, but it could be marshy land, hilly land, dry land, desert land, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of land. But the concept of land itself is, is it's another overall concept. And so when we talk about biological, that means anything that is living or has had life. So um, I was told the target is biological, describe the target. So that could be a person, it could be you know anything. 
And as I started the working on the session and going through the procedure, it's a written procedure. You're sitting at a table with your eyes open. So I'm going through this written procedure and putting my thoughts down on the page in certain places and just letting free flow of consciousness. And my first thought when I thought biological is like, oh, trees and plants. So I go with whatever first thought comes in because I figure even if it's wrong, it eventually gets on track. So I started out describing trees and plants and things. And then all of a sudden I had this moment of impact that we refer to as the aesthetic impact. And the aesthetic impact for me usually gets me on target. And at this moment, I suddenly had this sort of experience or visual, like I was riding a twisting roller coaster that was all lit up. And it was kind of twisting off into the darkness. And I went, whoa, what was that? And then I, I, I went, oh, I think I was just riding a strand of DNA. Cool. And I, and I just had this experience. I went, oh, I think I just wrote a strand of DNA. And that's when I went, oh my gosh, it's microscopic. And then I started really describing it. And then we take everything we get in the session and we write it up into a final report for the customer. And my final report ended up, I did it actually on an Excel spreadsheet in an outline format. So a lot of my students who are professional psychics and mediums and healers and things take controlled remote viewing because they want to be able to, for example, work with corporations. So they want to, uh, you know, they want to be able to do professional work and turn in professional science-based responses that will not get associated with the, the bad associations of like the, the neon palm in the window kind of a thing that a right. lot of people so not that there's anything wrong with them, neon palm in the window. I'm just saying a lot of people have negative connotations with quote unquote psychics or, or mediums or things because they just think it's really woo woo. And they, they, but they really like the credibility that comes with anything that's science based. So when the U S military discovered that the Russians were getting our military secrets during the cold war, they could not figure out how they were getting them. And then this man defected from Russia and he had documents showing that Russia had a psychic spying program and they were training soldiers to be psychic spies and spy on different their enemies. And so they said, well, if they have it, we have to have it. So they went to Stanford Research Institute in Palo Alto, California, and they spoke to two men who were brilliant physicists and who had participated in developing the laser pioneering the development of the laser. So these guys were intelligent. Hal Puthoff and Russell Targ, Harold Puthoff and Russell Targ. So these two men started doing a lot of research into clairvoyance, clairaudience, telepathy. And they ended up doing so many controlled experiments, experiments that they actually developed more solid proof that telepathy, clairvoyance, all these things exist than that the FDA has proving that aspirin is effective as a pain reliever. Oh, wow. Yeah, they have more proof. So, you know, it's and when you have skeptics who say, ah, it's just BS, I don't believe any of that. Um, it's usually because if they did accept it, if they really took a look at it and, and even tried it themselves to see if, you know, because that's the biggest convincer. If I do something, you might say, oh, that's a parlor trick. But if I teach you to do something and you do it yourself, you know that you're not defrauding yourself, right? That's yeah. why I created that free class, because there's nothing more convincing than doing it yourself. So when these guys you know, came up with all this information. Then the US military created an, a second arm of the unit that, so we have the research arm in Palo Alto, California. It's the secret think tank, Sanford, 
Research Institute, known as SRI. And then on the East Coast in Maryland, in a bunch of condemned buildings, they had these soldiers who were spies and who whose job was there was to be the remote viewers. So this was the applications arm where they actually did it, right? So when Jimmy Carter was asked by a producer from the Travel Channel, they were doing a show called Secrets Of, and every week it was Secrets Of Something Else. Mm -hmm. and this one week it was Secrets Of The White House. So I get this phone call from this producer from the Travel Channel, and she said, I just interviewed Jimmy Carter. And he said, when I asked him, what was the most you know, unusual thing from your presidency or something like that? He said, when the remote viewers found the missing Russian plane. And so she said, can you tell me more about this missing Russian plane thing? <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so what we did was we had a three-way call with Lynn Buchanan and Mel Riley and the producer and I, so that I guess that's a four-way call. And uh, so she could ask them about the whole session with the Russian plane. Hold on just a second. Okay. Anyway, so I, I thought that was very interesting, you know, just this, um, that, that even the President Carter, you know, that was fascinating. What happened was this, the Russians had this plane that was full of technology and it went down and no one knew where it was, including the Russians. So it was a big scramble to find the plane because we, mm -hmm. U.S. wanted their technology and wanted to, you know, see where the technology was. So it was they. The U.S. hoped we find the plane first, right? So they asked this group of remote viewers to tell them where the plane was. They gave them GPS coordinates, and and the 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 guys were like, "There's no way the plane could be here." So they didn't even go look. But coincidentally, something happened very close to those GPS coordinates um, the very next day, and they had to go there anyway. And then they found the plane. Oh gosh. Yeah, so then they were like, oh my gosh, the, the remote viewers were right. They they gave us the GPS coordinates. We we had the the distinction and the honor of doing a very large, heavily mounted project. I say heavily because we had 14 viewers and four project managers. It was a large project, and it was for an archaeologist who had spent 40 years of his life looking for these artifacts that he believed to be in this 200 square mile area of ocean. And his belief was that since that area of ocean has been covered by water for 18,000 years, what if prior to those 18,000 years, what if there was a pre-Adamic society living there, then we should be able to find remnants of that civilization. So he spent 40 years of his life with divers and boats and you know all kinds of expense trying to find these artifacts. So he came to a conference that I was presenting at and he approached me and said, well, what do you think if we try to find these things using remote viewers? And he said, I've worked with remote viewers before. I knew that he hadn't. I, I think he probably worked with psychics, but there really is a difference uh, because as I was telling you about the, the uh, research project for the micro, for the microphage, right. I, ended, I ended up turning in a report that had close to 200 perceptions. And these, the guys running the research project gave that report to four scientists who were experts in microphages. They knew nothing about remote viewing. They were experts in microphages. And they said, could you just score this, this um, Excel spreadsheet that's an outline and score it for which perceptions here, or what, are the, what words relate to the microphage and are correct and what are incorrect. 
And they each, all four of them scored it with 98% accuracy, that I that my perceptions have been 98% accurate. But think about 200 perceptions versus two sentences about something. Oh, that, yeah, totally. that's, yeah, that's one of the differences is that the methodology and the process allows you to get these perceptions that you can then, you can database them, you can categorize them, colors, textures, temperatures, smells, sounds, tastes. Um, you know, sizes, shapes, patterns, positions, measures, concepts like political, touristy, fun, things that are intangible. Um, and so it's not just the sketches or a sentence or two. This, these are full on reports. So when he got his report from 14 viewers, it was a book, you know, with a table of contents and everything. And when he got it, he called me, he said, oh, I've never worked with remote viewers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I've never worked with remote viewers. But it was... Um, Anyway, back to where was I before? I was talking about something else. I forgot my place now. Well, I think first you were talking about, yeah, just the difference between, you know, how some people think it's really woo-woo and they don't really actually consider how distinctive re controlled remote viewing is from, from something like I get where I'm not controlling it and I'm not in control of it because I'm just, you know, kind of, I, I haven't learned it. I got your book, the boundless book, and I started working with the exercises in there. But when you're actually controlling this and you're dropping yourself into this and you have this understanding of what you're supposed to be doing there instead of just kind of <laughs> reaching around in the dark kind of thing. That's a complete different um, it really is. experience. It's very, so it's almost like it's a directed, it's a directed process. Mm -hmm. that where, and, and the process itself, the structure of it is what helps you get information in a very controlled way. So if, if, for example, if you were to help somebody just off the cuff, find their glasses and you said, yeah, I, I'm seeing your glasses in a, in a room and there's these gray boxy like things and there's two of them close together and the glasses seem to be between them on the floor in a kind of a dark space, right? Well, the person's going, oh gosh, in my office, I have those filing cabinets, you know, and they run into the office and they reach down between them and there's the glasses that have fallen, you know, to between the filing cabinets. Um, so that's an example of just in straight up intuition people have that kind of thing happen. And, and a lot of people who are trained as psychics and mediums can, you know, have that happen. And it's really cool when that happens. I mean, it's like, yeah, I'm glad I helped you out. Right. And so generally, you know, that we don't want to, we don't want to kill a flea with a, with a hammer. Right. We, <laughs> right. So right. it's something simple. We don't need a, a CRV session. You know, you don't need a huge session. Um, but the, the thing about a CRV session is CRV is great when you need a lot of detail. So if, let's say, for example, if we had a kidnapped child and the police needed to know where's the child being kept. Um, if you were to say, well, let's see, uh, it's in a town with a library and a post office and a grocery store, you know, and you were to talk like that. Hold on just a second. I think I have to. Bless you. Thank you. Lots of allergies going around <laughs> with the beautiful weather we're having. Anyway, so if you were to say, well, you know, it's in town with a library and a grocery store and a post office, every town has that, right? Every town in the world has that. So that wouldn't be very helpful, right? It's like telling the police in New York that it's near a donut shop, you know? <laughs> How many donuts right. are there in New York? <laughs> um, and so what we have to do instead, we have to give enough detail 
and a detailed description that they can really find it, you know, in a, in a city like New York. So with CRV, what we can do is we can give enough detail and a really good description. And we can also use some techniques that we have. Everything is very hands-on and very kinesthetic because we believe that the, the science behind this is that the conscious is kind of the, the driver of the car and is sort of driving the car, but the car is owned and truly operated by the computer <laughs> that is really making all the systems work. And so if you think of the, uh, if you think of, for example, the difference between the driver of the car and Elon Musk and the, and the Tesla, uh, the Tesla is like a big computer, right? It's, it's driving down the street. It's, it's like your body. Your body's a computer. There's a gazillion processes happening in your body. So your conscious mind is really just 0.001% of who you are. Your subconscious mind is the thing that's really, it's like the Elon Musk of your body. It's the thing that understands all the systems and has, and really works through the body, but can also talk to the conscious mind, but it can only talk through the body. The body is the link between conscious and subconscious. So we also assume that the subconscious mind is connected to everything that ever is or was or will be. Okay. through whether it's plugged into the great big cosmic database in the sky, whether it's tapping into the Akashic records, whether it's speaking to spirit guides or angels, whether it's just has a direct line to God or whether there's some part of reality that we have absolutely no concept of that allows us to be so interconnected that we're able to pick up anything from all of time and space. You know, we don't really know what the mechanism is. Right. No, are is are one hundred percent of the people that you train who take this class able to do the controlled remote viewing? I've never had anybody that couldn't do it, and I know that uh, whenever a student asks me that, they're they're thinking about taking the class. They say, "Is there you know have you ever had anybody that can't do it?" I'm like, "Never had anybody." You know, they're thinking, "I'll be the first one." <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll be the first one that she can't teach. You know, but I've never had anybody. I mean, I've had. It's a hilarious thing is when. Uh, for example, a wife gets excited about remote viewing and wants to take the course. Her husband's afraid that maybe she's getting into a cult or something weird. So he comes and takes the class too to see what's my wife getting into, right? And I've had these husbands come and take the course. And a lot of times they're engineers. Uh, you know, they're like, they have a real left brain job that involves a lot of numbers or whatever. And it's really hilarious when the husbands actually score higher than the wives on their sessions <laughs> and the wives get really mad. Like he doesn't even care about this. I care. You know, a lot of times the, the caring is what actually kind of keeps them from being as successful because they're like, I'm, I'm just so afraid I'll be wrong. I want to be right so bad. And then they edit, you know, they go, well, I was going to write this down, but I was like, um, I was going to write this down, but it might be wrong. So I better not write it down. You know, and so because they have that going on, well, you know, they can't, uh, <laughs> if you have that on, you edit too much and you end up being wrong. Another thing too, is we have the, the problem of, of the conscious mind in the beginning playing tug of war with, with the subconscious. So I'll give you an example. I have a picture in an envelope and I say, Sue, can you describe what's in this envelope? And you say, well, it's red, smooth and shiny. I think it's an apple. And we open the envelope and it's a fire engine, a red fire engine. Uh -huh. Well, they're both red, smooth and shiny, but there's a big difference between an apple and a fire engine, right? And uh -huh. so 
what happens when when we do something like this is the conscious mind is one going, I bet it's an apple, I bet it's an apple. And the subconscious is trying to send you information about the target. And the, right. the, the but the conscious mind wants to be the boss, wants to be in charge, wants to be helpful. Let me let me give you, you know, let me help you. And so that's what even gets in the way of psychics a lot of times. Um, you know, just it's, it's the jumping to conclusions. I uh, I once watched um, Psychic Detectives. I think it was something on the Travel Channel many years ago, like 2004. My son came over and goes, Mom, have you heard of this show, Psychic Detective? Let's watch it. It's coming on right now. So we watched it. And in the show, this medium was tuning in. There was a murder victim. And the medium was tuning in to who killed the, murder, the victim. And she said, the, the victim was killed by a man who works... In, in something mechanical that revolves like a merry-go-round. So they start checking out all the carnivals nearby, all the, all the uh, you know, amusement parks nearby. They go on this wild goose chase. And when they finally do catch the guy, it turns out he was driving a cement truck, which mm -hmm. is a miracle thing that revolves. But the minute she attached that noun to it, that merry-go-round, she just said, like a merry-go-round, but that's still attaching a noun. They It sent them off on this wild goose chase. Well, that would be like, there has to be then a balance between giving enough information for something to be discovered and, and to give those like unique um, characteristics and then leaving it broad enough, like you said, where, where you know, you didn't assign that that merry-go-round or or the carnival feeling to it, unless they said it's a fun place, there's lots of people there. So, you know, so the difference between it's an, a solitary person, uh, there's not many people there, it doesn't seem fun. Right, of. and the, the, the key really is the balance is leave out the nouns and stick okay. to the just stick to describing. But the thing about it is that nouns are natural, a natural part of the process. They, right. they, they're going to pop in your mind. You can't fight them. You know, it's like, don't think about elephants. Don't think about elephants. Here. And so, you know, you can't fight it. So, so we teach you this process where you actually have kind of a dance going on between the conscious and subconscious mind. And we have an analogy that we call the president of the company analogy. And that analogy is that imagine that you're the president of your company and the CEO comes and says, Sue, I want you to take a two-week vacation. We want someone else to run the company while you're gone. Well, the first thing, you, your ego goes, wait a minute. You know, this is my baby. Who's going to run the company when I'm gone? So they send you off to Bermuda. You're on the beach. And what are you doing? You're constantly checking in. Oh, but before you leave, they say, don't worry, Sue. Um, we're going to have your son run the company. <laughs> And so, you know, then you're really conflicted because you want your son to be to do well. But at the same time, you don't want him to make you look bad. Right. You don't want him to do so good that he makes you look bad. And you don't want him to screw things up either. So while you're on the beach in Bermuda, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be checking in constantly. How's it going, son? What's going on? Tell me what's happening. Hey, mom, I, I came up with this great idea that I want to do for the company. And you're like, well, hold off on that till I get back right? You're not going to let the sun run the company. And the sun in this analogy is the subconscious mind. And so, you know, the subconscious mind doesn't get a chance to do its job. So what you have to do is you have to bring Sue back from Bermuda and put her out down at the dock stacking boxes and get her really busy with a job. So she has to stay out of the way. 
So that's what the structure of CRV is designed to do. It gives the, the conscious mind a job to do. So the job, so that conscious mind can feel honored and taken care of, but also kept out of the way so that the subconscious mind can come in and really do its thing. That makes sense too, because like you were saying, the, the conscious mind wants to uh, specify where the subconscious mind might be able to give you enough information specifically to the thing without without shifting it in that way. I think, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you have a class coming up too, don't you? Like on October 14th? Yes, I have a basic class coming up. And it's pretty exciting because I believe this is going to be only the fifth time that we're opening enrollment to a program that we don't even advertise that only certain people are allowed, very, very few oh, people wow. can get into. So uh, people are like, we, how come you don't have this on your website? Well, because we reached capacity so quickly. The first time we enrolled people into it, uh, we've enrolled, we've opened enrollment only four times because we just keep running at capacity and we can't invite more people in. But the basic class is a three-day, we call it the three-day uh, fast track program. And that class, you know, we I have uh, like four times a year. I, I offer it three or four times a year usually. And that's the, the best class for beginners. And on the second day of that class, we tell uh, the class about our coaching program. It's a three-year professional certification program. Now, oh, it, it took me many, many years before I really considered myself to have reached the pinnacle of my remote viewing, if there is such a thing, to become kind of in the, the world-class category of a remote viewer. And uh, and I don't mean to say that to brag, I just mean it based on all the viewers that I've seen and how we've worked together. And there's a there's just sort of a, a, a caliber of viewer that we, we consider to be like world-class level, but it takes a long time to get there and so much practice, right? But I thought to myself, well, I always, the, the, the programs I develop, because we have a five-tier membership club, um, we have three-day live classes, we have video courses for people who can't take a live class. Uh, we have um, just, we, now we have this coaching program. And the idea was, I always think, what would I have loved to have had when I was learning this? Because it can be a really lonely journey and, and quite a struggle if you're by yourself and you don't have support. So I wanted the membership club, which is essentially a mentoring club where, you know, like I used to charge $500 an hour. This was way back in the early 2000s. I charged $500 an hour to mentor you for one hour, for example, one-on-one -on -one mentoring for one hour. And then I thought this is a, a waste of my time because I could be mentoring 50 people for that hour. Right. It's one person. So I created this club it costs 49 bucks a month. And you, and when you buy the first class, you get it for free for two months. And so, you know, you're, you're in this mentoring club where you get an assignment and then I'm literally online with you going over your session and it's costing oh. you, 40, it's cost $49 a month. And as you go up into intermediate and advanced levels, you still get to keep attending the meetings for the lower levels. So altogether, by the time you're in advance, you're still paying 49 bucks a month, but you're getting an extra the 12 hours of learning of, of teaching every month, eight to that's 12 hours. Generous. Yeah. And, and that's includes me going over your sessions and, you know, helping you with your structure and all that kind of thing. So uh, what my goal was to have the most robust school 
that exists right now. And I am the teacher that teaches more students than any other teacher on the planet, you know, more often, more, more students more often, and overall have taught more. But my goal, my passion is that more people learn, we gotta reach the 1%, right? So we can have right. critical mass and raise consciousness. So my goal is to create a very loving community, which we have. We have a non-Facebook-based forum. We do have a Facebook group called Remote Viewing with Maury Williams. That's just a public group that anybody can join. But we have also this wonderful private forum. So, you know, and, it, and each one is designed in a level. That's why I say it's a five-tier membership because, mm -hmm. you know, the basic group has their group and you can ask questions in there and we're answering your questions. You can find partners to partner up with and uh, make friends and all that kind of stuff in a, in a non-Facebook-based forum that's private, that, that's just in our company. And we have that for each group, intermediate, advanced, the post-advanced groups, um, the professional groups, the medical applications group, and the operational remote viewers, which are the professionals. So when my thought was, what if people could get on a track where they had a coach that would coach them for an hour a week, one-on-one, -on -one? a real professional remote viewer coaching you for an hour a week, you know, like, what would yeah. that do? How much faster would people progress? Because that I thought, man, if I could have like in a perfect world, if I could have had whatever I wanted while I was developing to have my own one-on-one -on -one coach that I could reach out to anytime, anytime I had a question or whatever. Oh my gosh, that would have made such a difference. I would have progressed so much faster. And I, you know, and I think I would have reached a level of excellence much sooner, you know, um, and because sometimes this can be such a frustrating journey for, you know, and any kind of, any kind of really intense martial art is, is a, is a frustrating journey, you know? And so that's what CRV is. It's a mental martial art. Right. Right. Now, just because you said that and thinking about like times when I'm really working heavily, is it exhausting? With CRV? Is CRV exhausting? Yeah. Yeah, um, it depends. Different people react differently. And we also find there's many, many factors that affect a viewer's performance at any given time on any given session. Let's right. say you had a um, you had a boyfriend that used to beat you up and, you know, was cruel to you. And that's kind of a thorn in your past that that's sort of traumatic for you. If you had a target that had a person in it that reminded you of him on a subconscious level, mm -hmm. You might not want to view that target. So you might start the session and go, man, I just don't feel like viewing right now. And I feel exhausted trying to view this. And you wouldn't even know that that's the reason. Does that make sense? Yeah, or totally. If, yeah. Or if you hate the sight of blood and there's blood at the target or, you know, there can be so many factors. How much sleep you got last night? Um, and, you know, so what we encourage viewers to do is to always document when they start their session, what their circumstances are. Like, I just had lunch. I just did a workout. I just meditated. I just went for a walk. You know, I just took a bath, whatever, whatever they just did. And that way, after you do hundreds of sessions or even just 40, <laughs> you can look through your sessions and go, oh, the ones that I had the highest score that I had were the most accurate. The majority of those were right after a workout, let's say. Then you know that your best work is to do right after a workout. We also have you write your location because you might find out that there's a certain room in your house. That is that you do better work than if you do it somewhere else. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We even have we have a database for all this stuff, so that if, if for the students, yeah, for my students, it's free. Whoever goes in there, they can put their stuff in the database, and that way they can say, "Wow, I am like ninety eight percent accurate when it comes to colors." 
but I totally suck at, you know, man-made objects, let's say, or I, I'm really, really good when I view in out in, out in the driveway in the motorhome, as opposed to viewing in my living room, you know, or whatever. And you also find what your what your weaknesses are. I discovered that I had a really bad fear of heights that I didn't even really consciously recognize until every time there was a target involving heights, I would just kind of like, I can't, I just can't do this. And finally, Lynn said, do you have a problem with heights? And I, was, and I suddenly had all these memories pop up from my childhood of where I really had a problem with heights. So I said, yeah, I really do. So he started just having me view height targets a lot. And I became desensitized. And since I became desensitized, I have done bungee jumping. I've gone parasailing. I've ridden oh, wow. the highest roller coasters in the world all day long, you know. And so it's really helpful for getting over phobias and things like that, you know. So CRV, CRV has a lot of wonderful benefits to it that you just wouldn't necessarily consider. Help me get rid of a, a ton of fears in my life as well. So that's, you know, that alone is worth the, the price of gold. <laughs> Right, right. I'm all like, I'm all in. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and it just sounds fascinating. It's opening yourself up to a skill set that's a latent skill set that a lot of people have. And like you said, that 1%, and it can help you make decisions. It can help you, like with you on the 10th of September, it can help you have the foresight to be able to react to situations as they're occurring, because you already have some nuggets of useful information that you can use to guide you. So it sounds like win, 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 win all the way around. And you can make a profession out of it. Exactly. And one of the things, you know, is that CRV is kind of the basket that holds other types of remote viewing skills. The, the term remote viewing is like the term martial arts. It's like, that's really generic. Like if you say, I have a, I'm a 10th degree black belt in martial arts. You never hear anyone say that. They'll be like, right. I'm a 10th degree black belt in Taekwondo, or I'm a 10th degree black belt in karate, but they don't just, you know, say martial arts because that's not, that's just too generic of a term. Well, the same thing with remote viewing. As soon as this thing became declassified in 1995, um, it was all in, you know, it was on Larry King Live in 60 Minutes in 2020, and it was all over the news. The U.S. military used psychics, you know, and so... Right. When that happened, um, all of a sudden, everybody was saying, oh, I'm a remote viewer. I've been a remote viewer my whole life. I, you know, I get letters all the time from people saying, oh, I'm a, I've been a remote viewer my whole life. And that is probably true in the generic sense of the term. You know, what is remote viewing? It's any kind of psychic ability, truly. People would call Lynn and say, well, I'm a uh, crystal ball remote viewer, or I'm a palm reading remote viewer, or I'm a tarot remote viewer. You know, so they were attaching remote, the term remote viewing to everything they were doing. And I think the idea was to add credibility, really, you know. Right. And so, and so I teach three different types of remote viewing. I teach controlled remote viewing, which is the, 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 the father of remote viewing in that it holds like the basket. It's like that organizer in your junk drawer. You know, you buy a drawer organizer to organize the drunk, the, the junk so that you have a little cubicle for your rubber bands and a little cubicle for your paper clips and that half used tubes of super glue, you know, whatever. And so um, it holds, it can hold and you can do all the other methods within that. You can even do tarot, crystal ball reading, whatever you do, you can do it within the structure of CRV. And we actually teach that in the advanced class, how if you're really good at some other type of modality, psychometry or whatever, you can actually 
take your results and put them into the structure of CRV and, and make it scorable and databaseable so that you can find your weaknesses and strengths. So you can strengthen your weaknesses and utilize your strengths when when there's push comes to shove, there's a life at stake. Let's let's use the person who in the database has the best ability to get this type of information that we need. You know, right. so it's, so so there's a science to it. There's a there's an organization to it, which really helps. Again, you know, like when, when if you're going to if you're going to become a sharpshooter, you wouldn't consider it unusual to take training to learn how to be a sharpshooter, and you know. You know, because you don't want to just go shooting willy-nilly. You might hurt somebody, including yourself, right? So you want to be able to hit the target when you shoot. <laughs> and so whether it's you know, bullets or arrows or whatever. And so in that sense, that's what we're going for with CRV. That's why we have a database. We, we want this to be something that is truly aimed at helping people and can be used, you know, for, for good. Um, you know, find that missing child. Uh, help that archaeologist find. I, I don't think I ever gave the punchline that we were able to give this archaeologist in this report GPS coordinates. He took a boat divers out there and found the artifacts, found walls, archways, things with inscriptions on them. He found the the civilization that he had been looking for for 40 years. Wow. But it took remote viewers to provide him with that information because we were able to give him GPS coordinates. And so that's the thing. And it's not an exact science. We make plenty of mistakes. We're not always perfect. We definitely have, you know, sometimes we're off. Every viewer does. Uh, like I said, many factors can affect that, how much sleep you got, you know, what your what the, the subject matter is of the target you're viewing. Um, so that is all taken into consideration when we do this training. And so on, I'm teaching a new basic class, October 14th through 18th. The last time I taught basic was actually this year, this year's been kind of sparse because I think the last time I taught basic was in March or February. So it's been a while. So I'm teaching um, a live class on Zoom, the 14th through the, the 16th, and it starts at nine in the morning mountain time. I'm on mountain time and goes till 5 p.m., four, 4 or 5 p.m., depending. And so it's a full class, you know, and, every, and it, they always sell out. But then on Saturday, so we teach Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but on Saturday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time is when I'm going to be um, offering people the opportunity to join a program that's a three-year, very intensive program. So it's not for everybody, and it's not cheap. It's very expensive. Right. I can imagine. Yeah. You can imagine. I mean, these are skilled coaches that I have that have spent many years of their lives and much money becoming world-class remote viewers. So, And then they've gone through my coaching program and everything. So they, in order to to be able to coach people. These are highly skilled people and I can't pay them a pittance, especially, I mean, some of them have high paid professional jobs in addition to coaching. So um, so imagine they're spending an hour a week and not only that's just the time they're spending with you. That doesn't include the time where they're preparing things for you, you know, getting ready and to assign you stuff and work with you and emails going back and forth and all that. So having a one-on-one -on -one coach is, wow, it's like, the cat's meow. <laughs> oh, I can imagine because, you know, even for myself and all of the courses and everything that I've took, usually there's not a mentor who kind of walks us through the processes and, and everything. And it's just kind of, I don't want to say generic and basic, but more basic than generic, more, you know, self-study. And if you want to improve your work, 
you're not really given, you know, kind of directed mentorship in a way that I would think. And I'm just like going back to the to the love of it being scientifically logged and tracked and databases being created and things like that, because I feel like we're in that space right now where that's an important aspect Mm -hmm. of the work that we do moving forward is Mm -hmm. to have that scientific or that that like provable part of it that documented part of it that part of Mm -hmm. it that's like this was real it's not just a hallucination or a hoax or a a a, you know a, a lucky a lucky call a lucky guess exactly exactly that's so important and so we are um we're coming to a time i think on on the planet right now where science is is starting to kind of be more accepting of the mysteries the great mysteries that we face in in and they're beginning to realize when when certain experiments prove that there are parallel universe universes which it's happened right they they have proved parallel universes now through some of their experimentation um, quantum theory many aspects of quantum theory are now being proven and so scientists are getting some scientists that are realizing this there are some who just refuse to even accept the proof you know some of einstein's things about the he thought einstein thought the speed of light is the fastest speed anything could go well now they've got things that go faster than the speed of light so they so they blew that out of the window right and so that upset the apple cart for a lot of physicists who were like now what do we do things that we thought were true are no longer true so how do we handle that how do we you know what do we do with 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 having our paradigms blown to smithereens and so um and so i think what's happening is is those you know back i'm sure you're aware you know back in the 1800s there was spiritism right there was there were seances and table tipping and all that and there was a big movement at the at the turn of the century, right around 1900, a big movement where everybody was really into spiritism. Um, at the same time, you know, back in the back in the old days when they discovered germs, and they said, right. oh, "We believe." If, if before they actually had proof, they said, "We believe there might be microscopic, unseeable things that could be causing people to get sick." It could be killing women when doctors deliver the babies and doctors need to start washing their hands before they do surgery. And they got hooted out. A lot of them had their careers destroyed and they were made fun of, oh, little things we can't see, you know. They were totally hooted and laughed out of their careers. Um, and, and it turned out they were right, you know, like Galileo. So it's, science has always had to face those who defied current belief systems because a lot of science is based on belief it's based on circumstantial evidence that turns out not to be true and we don't even know what reality is i think reality is not at all what we think it is and so as these things are happening though i'm seeing a lot i have a lot of scientists among my students in fact my husband is a forensic scientist he's a retired forensic scientist yeah so and he met me he had never heard of crv when he met me um you know and i he went and took all the classes and he is just, you know, he, he's a firm believer in it all. And, uh, I, I love his belief in me because there have been times I was working on a kidnapping and I, I got the name of the place where this kidnap victim was being held. It was near this town in a foreign country. 
and I and I drew schematics of what, what the layout looked like and all these things. And um, but we couldn't find it on Google Earth. We were looking and looking, trying to find it. We couldn't find it on Google Earth. And I wanted to give them coordinates, but I couldn't because it wasn't coming up right. So the next day, my husband comes home from work, and he says, "I found it! I found it!" I'm like, "You found what?" He said, "I found blank blank the name of the the village," and he said. And he had this map, like a physical map, and he opens this map, and it's a map of this country, like an amazing detailed map. And I said, where did you find this map? He said, well, if you said it existed, I knew it had to be there. So I went to a special oh. map shop, and I bought this map. And then we found it, and we went on Google Earth, and then we were able to give them the coordinates. And everything I had sketched was right there when we pulled it up on Google Earth. You know how in Google Earth you can get really close up? And we right. were able to give them the coordinates and everything. And that's where this guy had been being held, this kidnap victim. But it was really, you know, it just kind of amazes me how the whole process works. Um, in another session, I was supposed to find the reason for this airplane crash. And I didn't know, I wasn't told it was an airplane crash. I didn't know what I was looking at. But when I was doing the session, I, I said, there's something failing. And... Uh, my husband, who was who has now been trained to be a world-class remote viewing monitor, said, move to the failing and describe. So I said, well, it's, you know, I'm Italian. I'm like, well, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> I'm moving my hands around. He says, could you sketch that for me? And I said, well, I'm not a mechanic, but I'll try. So I sketched this thing, and I actually sketched the bearings on the inside of this airplane engine. And I didn't know what I was sketching. I didn't know what it was at all. But my husband's dad was an, an airplane mechanic in the 50s. And this was a an airplane from the 50s. This crash actually happened in the 1950s. And uh, so my, you know, he's like, oh, my gosh. Like, he didn't say anything at the time because the monitor's job is to be stone-faced. But much, much later, once I was given feedback and knew what I'd been doing, he was like, that's like one of the best sessions you've ever done. And you completely sketched this. And then we were able to get a photo of the actual airplane engine. And it was so uncannily accurate. Wow. But what, wow. Do, I know about, what do I know about airplane engines? Zero. So to be able to describe not to identify, because if I were trying to identify it, I can't because I know nothing about that. So I would probably identify it incorrectly if I tried to name it or label it. Um, right. Whereas if you just stick to describing, then you can be highly accurate even when you know nothing about whatever it is you're talking about. Right, right. And and you just described too, this wonderful, you know, just the awe of being able to get into that place and to be able to pick up that much detail so that somebody who's a mechanic and who's familiar with that would be able to say, gosh, you, you drew that pretty accurately. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, it's it, it all, you know, that's the thing too, is people will, how, my kids particularly, one of my sons was like, how can you still be so excited, especially when you're teaching basic? You've been teaching basic now for 22 years. How do you still get so excited about it? You know, when it's, it's the same thing over and over. And I said, because I never lose that sense of amazement and wonder at how it works. And when you see a new student, you know, doing it for themselves for the first time and they nail the target, you're just, they're just so excited. Uh, they just sort of float out of the room after that. They're just walking on air. They're so excited to discover their own potential. Yeah. You know, for some people it's, it freaks them out. Um, we had one, one person who was a scientist, female, she did a target and nailed it so accurately and described it was, I think it was these guys in orange 
safety vests who were digging a car out of the snow was the photo. And she described those guys, their coats, the snow, the car, the shovels, everything. She described it so accurately. And she's afterwards, she said, I described it so accurately that it freaks me out. It's like busting all my paradigms. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. And it's probably something to definitely get used to. Like you have to process it internally because it is a mystery. But it, it is, yeah. And yeah, and I, I'm like, I could talk to you about this forever because it's probably also the universe conspiring to put everything together because how would you have known it was a plane engine unless your father-in-law who was familiar with that kind of plane engine was there to actually view the thing that you had seen. So there are he these- He wasn't there, but my husband uh, okay. with his dad said, you know, at later he said, those are the bearings inside the, inside the engine. You drew the bearings and, and the whole the whole kit, the whole attachment of the bearings and how they were inside the engine and everything. I drew it from several different angles. You know, I made a whole bunch of schematics of it. And I'm not an artist, but somehow this these sketches just were, they ended up being really good. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, every now and then you strike, strike gold, you know? But um, anyway, so it's been a wonderful journey. I, I'm so thrilled to have to be able to share all this with you and and uh, and your listeners, I, I don't know how many listeners you have, but I hope they've enjoyed it and uh, and I hope they check out the free class. One thing I want to say because a lot of people go, "Oh my God, it's going to be a sales pitch," right? Because that we all have been hit with that. When oh. I created the free class, I thought one thing I'm not going to do is do what irritates the heck out of me is to to try to check out something that says it's free and then find out it's nothing but a sales pitch. This is not a sales pitch. This is for it's at least four hours, I think. I think it's eight hours, maybe. What it is, is it's four parts. You get you get an email after you signed up for the free class. The next day, you don't get it immediately, but the next day you get an email with a link and you click on the link and it takes you to your first lesson, which is I think 40 minutes to an hour long. I don't remember. It's a video of me teaching. And then after that, there's a there's a Q and A that that is a, it's it was live originally but it's now recorded. You can either watch the Q and A or not watch it. You don't have to. It's not part of the class, but you can have it. It's an extra thing. And then the next day you get another email with a new link and you can watch oh. that. So you have ten days to watch at your convenience because people will write and go, oh no, I'm going to be working when it comes in because it says something like this will appear at nine a.m. in your inbox and they'll go, right. well, I'm, I'm at work. It doesn't matter. You get to have access to it for like ten or twelve days. Uh, to access at your convenience. You know, you can watch it at three in the morning if you want, <laughs> you know, wherever, whenever you want. And so uh, it'll come in, you get, it comes in for four days. And the last day, on the very last day, um, I'll say, hey, if this is something that, if this really resonates with you and you feel like it is for you, because I find the people that take CRV feel called to it. You know, right. they have a so I don't want people who don't have a calling. <laughs> I don't want people who say, oh, is, I don't want to do that. I want the people who really feel called to it so that we can help them. And so I'm like, hey, if you if I'm not I'm not a salesperson, I'm a teacher. If this resonates with you and you would like to take something a little more and then I make them an offer where they can get three hundred dollars off on the uh, on the six week course. So. And so that's, that's the only sales pitch. It's at the very end of the class and it's like one sentence long. <laughs> so. 
Well, and like you said, I think that it's a calling for a lot of people. And if they're to the point where they're interested in, in and they watch all of the classes and everything, you also have a book that I bought on Amazon, the, um, the Boundless Phase One. And I think you have more than one book on Amazon. Like I think there's I have, right now I have two books on Amazon. The third book is something I'm working on right now. So Boundless, Boundless Phase One is talking about it, I, I really wanted to write a book that anyone would understand and find entertaining. And really, my, my goal as a teacher is to make learning fun and easy to remember. So, you know, I, I put in stories and things like that to, because my students generally tell me that the stories help them remember the, the you know, the concept. So, um, because I've seen some remote viewing books that were this thick and you needed a micro, you needed, you needed a microfine, a magnifying glass to read the print because the print was so small. And I was just like, I would never make it through a tome like that. So I decided to write a book on each phase of the six phase process. And oh, so, nice. but the first book I published was really just for my students and it's called Monitoring. And it's the only book that's ever been written on remote viewing monitoring. But on the cover of the book, I explain on the back cover how Edgar Casey, for example, you know, he had someone there who was taking notes and kind of his support person, in addition to his wife. And that's what a monitor is, really. And so it has some great tips for both monitors and for intuitive teams that are not remote viewers, but, you know, work together as, you know, psychic teams or whatever, and how, uh, you know, a, a psychic could have a helper. That, right. that without leading them or giving them information, but that just is there to be supportive. Like, do you need a break? Um, would you like some water? You know, are you getting cold? Can I turn up the thermostat? You know, anything like that. Plus um, just kind of asking questions like my husband, like when I said something's failing and he said, move to the failing and describe, mm -hmm. you know, or if I say, well, somehow this, this biological thing is related to the man-made thing in some way will move to the relationship between the biological and the man-made and describe, you know, so that's what the job monitor's job is to kind of help the viewer stay in structure and move around the target to explore all aspects of it without giving any information. Cause usually the monitor doesn't know anyway, the monitor doesn't know any information. So. Right. Right. That makes sense. And that's, that also really makes a lot of sense to have somebody who, who is, is, aware enough to be able to lead you to that connection point as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody, Lori Lambert Williams, she is doing a course. The basic course starts on October 14th, but you can check out her website, intuitivespecialist.com. And you can, I think that your free course is there as well. Your book's on Amazon. It's called Boundless. That's what I'm reading now, and I'm starting with that. And so, Lori, thank you so much for taking time today and meeting with us and really sharing so much about controlled remote viewing. It's been fascinating. Sue, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to be here. And this is live, right? This is happening right now? This is happening right now. And then there will be a replay on YouTube. So if anybody want, if anybody missed anything or they want to, you know, it'll be up on YouTube forever <laughs> or as long as YouTube is there. <laughs> so that's yeah. great. Thanks so much. It was great talking with you. Yeah, very nice talking with you. So everybody, again, Lori Lambert Williams, and you can find her at intuitivespecialist.com. 
And yeah, my mom says, awesome. Thank you. So she was with us today. <laughs> so Hi, Hi Sue's mom. <laughs> oh, thank you so much again. And everybody, thanks for joining us. We hope you found it as fascinating as I did. So take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye. My mom's.